Hey there, do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. Welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 138. My guest this week, it's Allison Roman. Wow. Right? Allison Roman. She has a brand new cookbook out called sweet enough there's a lot of great taglines about it um one of the ones i like is unfussy desserts to add a slice of joy to your every day it is a awesome book for people who think that they are not bakers or people who maybe don't even really like desserts uh it's an interesting concept and i'm so so stoked for her this is her third book she released dining in in 2017 and then in 2019 she put out nothing fancy which ended up being quite a hit because a lot of people really connected to it over the pandemic. People found themselves inside wanting to make great food. And uh, that was their gateway. Really, really cool. Allison and I, as you will hear, we go very far back. We used to go to shows together when we were quite young. We talk emo. We talk mixtapes. A lot of fun stuff here. I think you're going to have a good time. If you are new here, which is very, very possible. Um, I want to let you know that there's a bonus episode available right now where Allison answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that by going to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. You can subscribe for as little as $3 a month and you will get access to that bonus episode plus a whole lot more. Lots of other bonus episodes for almost every single episode of this show. Plus there's a discord channel. Uh, I do a radio show every week, so you get access to that, all sorts of stuff. And if you enjoy yourself and feel like you might want to come back for more, please subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you're listening to this, leaving a positive rating and review. We all ask you to do that. There's a reason it helps, uh, helps with algorithms, helps, uh, you know, just make us feel good. What can I say? Um, all right. Without further ado, here's my conversation with the wonderful, the talented. It's Allie from the Valley. Allison Roman, how are you? My, my very, very longtime friend. How are you today? One of my oldest friends. Um, I am so good. How are you? I'm good. How, so you're obviously in the middle of like the start of, I'm assuming the start of this whole press tour. How, uh, how long has this been going on now? Um, for like the last month and a half, maybe like sporadic. And 
I would say like the thick of it was maybe like a week and a half ago because you're meeting like all sorts of deadlines. And then I go on a book tour starting in two weeks. Um, And so then it kind of like mellows out. I don't know if you feel that way too. Like, like the tour is kind of like the planning of the tour and the, and the press for the tour is like more exhausting than the actual tour. You say that. And then you're like four days in the tour and you're like, I'll never sleep again. And so totally, I don't know. It's something that I, it was so funny. So I'm so obviously like, with a bunch of, you know, band people or whatever in my Instagram feed, your tour ad mat looks so much like a punk <laughs> band's tour ad mat. And some of the thing, one of the things that made me laugh and I had to really double take is I saw for the New York one, it says the first Unitarian church presents. So the punk venue in Philadelphia is the first Unitarian church. So I was just like, my, I was double taking it. Or I was like, wait, what? Like that's- I'm coming for you. I'm coming for your demo. Yeah. Well, so the guy who, this guy, Ian, who does the posters, he typically, he mostly just does music. He does like album covers and music posters and stuff like that. So that makes a lot of sense. I think that is definitely his sensibility, but you know, I think all, like a tour poster is a tour poster. It's like, you have like the image, the, what it is and the dates. Right. And like, there's only so many configurations, but I do think that he was sort of pulling from like the seventies ish vibe of the book and like applying it to like a slightly different font treatment and all that stuff. So it has that energy for sure. Like you, you picked up on that. That yeah. was not directive. It was just, it naturally occurred. <laughs> well, I love that. That's, that was the direction that he was leaning into. Cause seriously, yeah, I, I double took it so much. I was like, this just looks like a, like a modern, like post hardcore bands ad mat. And I'm really into it. So yeah, it's me. <laughs> it's, it's my personal brand now. <laughs> um, so, you know, the show's all about first experiences and things like that. So like, I have all of my like fun, you know, cooking related first experience questions, but because you and I, obviously our friendship is built upon um, going to shows together and music and all Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. I thought it'd be fun maybe for people uh, who don't realize your musical background as much (laughs) to get into this a little bit. That's being generous to call it a musical background is really generous. (laughs) Um, So I was curious, uh, what was your first favorite band when you were a kid? God, my first favorite band. I feel like I was I was mostly like a first favorite artist. Okay. Because like I remember going to the warehouse with my dad, RIP. Yeah. And buying four tapes. And I like that was it. I had like I had enough money to buy four tapes. And remember the or maybe I don't think they were CDs. They maybe they were CDs. How old are we? I don't know. <laughs> whatever it was but remember how they used to have like the sales also it was like a dollar and whatever so I was like mixing and matching so yeah. I bought I bought Janet Jackson self-titled okay boys to men two Mariah Carey music box and letters to Cleo okay <laughs> wild card um yeah and so that was sort of like my formative collection I definitely was younger and like into more like poppy radio music. And then I remember like, this is like a very weird niche story, but like my dad worked at a car dealership and somebody had stolen a car off the lot and the police recovered it and they brought it back to the lot. And in the car was a whole book of CDs. Like whoever stole the car brought their own music, which I think is funny. And in the CD like thing, it was like, Blues Traveler and Weezer and Nirvana and like more like alternative rock music. I'm using quotations because I mean, 
yeah, it was for the, for me at the age and the time. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, this is my vibe. Like, I really love this. I still love Janet Jackson, obviously. Uh, sure. Uh, Mariah Carey can do no wrong, but I, it was sort of like my transition to like different style of music that sort of fell into my lap by accident. But I don't know that I had like a favorite band. Um, I remember like the first artist I fell in love with though, like in a deep, meaningful way as like an adult or as like a young adult was probably Alanis Morissette. Okay. Also, I love that the CD book that led you to like more rock was like contraband, you know? Oh like, yeah. It's... Yeah. It was stolen goods for sure. And my stole... dad was like, well, I guess we own this now. Like he was like, you know, he did, he was like, do you want this? Yeah. I like the <laughs> and idea. like, oh, Cheryl Crow, Cheryl Crow is in there. Um, okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that Jagged Little Pill was definitely, I think, formative for probably just about everybody. There's like, yeah. There was like what seven singles on that record. It was yeah, yeah. and boy does it hold up. Like you can yeah. no no skip. There's one skip. I forget the name of the song, but there's only one skip, which is a feat. Um, what was your first concert? <laughs> well, in the same vein, my first yeah. concert was the Lilith Fair. Oh my god, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah, yeah. who was who was on it that year? Who was headlining? Do you remember? Sarah McLaughlin, my number one. Um, the Dixie Chicks. Um. Cheryl Crow. Yeah. Um, who oh, I mean, God, I like barely remember. Like yeah. Lorena McKennett, I feel like like some like weird, like sort of of the moment, like Enya adjacent women were sure. definitely on the tour at that moment. Yeah. Um, I remember like the energy of the concert more than actually who was there though. I think I was like 12. Yeah. And it, I was so overwhelmed by like being at this place. I was I went with my mom and she had some friends that went as well. And I remember being like pretty like not in touch with the actual music or connecting with it necessarily but just more like the energy and it's like a different kind of vibe right because it's like a festival but the concert I went to after that was Alanis Morissette and Tori Amos together damn yeah. damn where was that do you remember it was in Irvine okay like Irvine Whatever, Meadows Irvine. Yeah, yeah 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 damn I remember I had just got my ear pierced Oh. And I went to a Tori Amos Alanis Morissette concert wearing an Alanis Morissette shirt with my dad. Very formative. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was you, pretty cool. <laughs> you hit you hit Claire's and then uh and then got on the road. It's a it's a Southern California special, is what they call that. Yeah. <laughs> it's the number two. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I'll have that. I'll have that. Thanks. Uh, um what about uh what about favorite bands when you uh when you got into your teens? So like closer to when you and I became pals probably like what yeah yeah like what were what were your favorite bands then I mean not to be a sycophant but it was like kind of like whatever you liked I was <laughs> like well you you were my north star like I really looked to you to sort of be like the arbiter of what I should be into but my favorite thing about you as my friend at that time is that you never made me feel bad for other music that I liked like it was never like oh that's not good and this is good you just would present things that you thought were good and you would like talk about why you thought they were good. And I sort uh, of picked and chose from that. And I think of like our Venn diagram. Yeah. Our biggest overlap was like always like more singer songwriter, like softer, more emotional. Um, I, I dabbled in quote the harder stuff <laughs> in like my late teens, but it was mostly yeah. cause I like the guys I was into were like into that music. And I was like, yes, I love Avenged Sevenfold. Like, no, I don't. I hate that. <laughs> I, why would I listen to that? um oh, that's awesome you know but I think like yeah I was a huge get up kids fan um Rilo Kylie, Bright Eyes 
uh, oh. for confessional Thursday was, I think probably our biggest like shared, um, love. And I, I am so tickled at how close you've become with them. So it makes what, me really so happy. So, so that's all very sweet. And I really appreciate you saying that. So one of the, one of the funniest things is, uh, so I'm still like close with those guys. And pretty recently, um, when I was in New York, uh, I was hanging out with Jeff and you came up in conversation because he follows, you know, like a, a ton of food stuff, like his, uh, his wife is in that world and all that sort of stuff. So, um, I brought up, I was like, you know, that Alice, like I took Allison to go see you guys with like, Coheed, <laughs> with like Coheed and Thrice. And we met you back and his whole brain was exploding. He was like, are yeah. you kidding me? So, I know. Well, he's was... gone in to eat at the restaurant that is owned by two friends of mine who are very into you as well as Thursday and like that whole collection of music they're close with thrice. Like they, it's like the overlap there. I've, I've been getting, right. trying to get you to meet them for so long, but Jeremiah and Fabian, they own Contra and wild air and um, a few other spots around town. And I remember they were like, they would like post it like Jeff can And I was like, wait, my whole, cause I co-wrote a cookbook with them. Oh, and I'm okay. like, what is going on here? It was like yeah. a real meeting of the minds. So we all right. have to hang out one day, I think is yeah. the conclusion I've drawn. Um, so something else that I figured would be fun to bring up because I'm a pack rat <laughs> and don't throw anything away is that oh I, I still have one of the <gasps> mixtapes that you made me. <laughs> so oh my God. Uh, I love that you would always title your mixtapes. So this one is uh, Fresh Sangria and Lemon Tea. Oh, is... foreshadowing, my goodness. I know, I wow, know. A Virgo, a Virgo till the very end, had to label, <laughs> had to label. Um, Would it be fun Oh my God, you... I'm so embarrassed. No, this is great. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Would <sighs> Would it be fun for you to know the track listing on here? I think it... it would be fun for all of us. And you know what? Uh... I bet I stand by at least, if I stand by, 40% of the track list, I'd feel really proud of that. But I bet it's more like 60%. I think it's a banger. I'm going to be honest. Okay. <laughs> I'm, and I'm going to go as far as to say you put one of my current, my still favorite songs in the world on here. So, wow. okay. Please okay. tell tell us all. So uh, there's one faux pas that you did though, where you, where you put the same artist twice, but that's, it's okay. We're going to give it a pass I was, because- yeah. Well, because I give it a pass because you start and end the mixtape with the same artist, but you know, so that's oh. at least it rounds it out. It rounds well, it that out. Feels, that feels like a choice. Exactly. That does not feel like a mistake. That feels like a choice. Exactly. So track one, we got Bright Eyes Center of the World from mm. Fevers and Mirrors. Good song. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Then we got Glassjaw Piano. Oh, wow. Yes. Then a deep cut that I have not thought about this band in so long that I really want to revisit. Do you remember the band, the effect they have that AE logo. They kind of sound like, the yes. Paint. Yeah. Yes. They were the same band. To totally. Me. Totally. But, yeah. Uh, that song's called always artificial. I'm literally going to track down that song as soon as we're done here. <laughs> Can we I have play not... it now? Do we have the rights? Can we cue it up? <laughs> uh, then Raina Maria, uh, mm. the double life blood brothers, American girls, Interesting. One line drawing your letter. It's a good song. Uh, the faint. You didn't put the song because I think we're running out of room here, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> and then the last track on uh, side A is Jets to Brazil, Sweet Avenue. That song is a banger. Wow. That, that I have to remake this playlist so that I can remember what all these songs sound like. But like certain 
like certain names like of the band even just like bring me back to a very specific place because I haven't thought about like Rainer Maria in oh my god right 25 years <laughs> I hope they're doing well me too you know it'd be fun uh maybe when we put this out we'll do it we'll do like a Spotify playlist oh my god that would be so fun <laughs> people of a certain age would really get a kick out of that <laughs> absolutely uh, and then this date, this lets us know how long ago this mixtape was because track one on side two is the postal service who are about to celebrate their 20 year anniversary of. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, okay. postal wow. service, nothing better. Cursive, the recluse. Great song. Mm, great uh, Seisha, an open letter, <laughs> which is. Which is awesome. I don't know if you know this, but I, the label that I do, I just, uh, a couple of years ago, I put out the discography for Seisha on vinyl. Like I got to oh, work with I them did and see put that. that out. Yeah. So like, that's a full circle situation. Um, sharks keep moving. Try to sleep. Hmm. Okay. Rilo, Rilo Kylie, spectacular views. Mm, that really holds up. I, would, I stand by that. Yeah. Totally. This also holds up. I don't know the last time you listened to this band. You and not you. Oh, recent, not, not recently. I really feel like they held up for me personally. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really good. That song is, uh, uh, we love our hive and then, uh, the Smiths. Asleep. I think it was, it was re we heart our hive was, we the, heart our the hi official, yeah. was the official title, but see, I didn't know if you were being cute because there's actually the heart. So I didn't know if, uh, if, mm, uh, no, I think that's how it was written. Okay. I didn't know if we were running out of space again. So then, uh, <laughs> the Smiths asleep and then finally bright eyes falling out of love with this volume so banger pretty good i think that like also when i'm hearing the track list especially in the like blood brothers seisha era like i was making this for you so i think totally. that like i took mixtaping very seriously and i i feel like as anyone who does you're creating a bespoke experience for the recipient yes. so some of those bands were perhaps not my all-time favorite but i did you know share the commonality and that's why they were on your mixtape absolutely i i feel it and it's uh it's an honor to the point where i still have it so how about oh, that god i love that thank you um okay should we uh should we should we talk about um food stuff now should that yeah let's should... talk about whatever you want <laughs> um so this is fun so growing up what do you what was your first favorite food I would say like the first thing that I fell in love with was probably a microwavable Marie Callender's pot pie. Oh, wow. Okay. It was like the first food I remember eating like four times a week. Okay. Like it, during summer vacation or any time that I was home alone, I would make one every day and I became like addicted to it. I was like, I need this flavor. I need this food. I would like, it had to be like baked and cooked a certain way. I would like start it in the microwave and finish it in the toaster oven. Like I was like really cultivating my sense of what my preferences were. I was very young, obviously. Um, I had a few other foods like this. Um, egg salad and tuna salad were like the first things that I started to like cook myself and be like, I like the way this tastes. I need it to taste a certain way. And be got like a really, I became like very attached to how these things tasted. And I became really particular about how they tasted. And also microwavable knish from a box, which I don't know the brand. I haven't been able to find it since the nineties, but dipped in like Lowry seasoned salt. Those are like my formative year food memories. But like, I also feel like I was always a really good eater and I was always really 
well exposed. Like between both my parents, whether they were cooking or I was microwaving pot pies by myself, or we were ordering takeout, like I feel like I had a pretty wide variety. So also to like pinpoint a favorite is difficult for me. Uh, it's it's funny, you kind of touched on something that I think is pretty, uh, says a lot about where we grew up and everything like that, which is um, the idea of you making that stuff by yourself. Like uh, mm, I'm yeah. assuming, I'm assuming like you, you were probably a latchkey kid with like parents that were, working yeah. until probably like five or six so you would be home alone after work or, or sorry after school and uh yeah. making food for yourself yeah that's uh I feel like that's like a valley kid 100% staple yeah exactly I don't know anyone who didn't have that lifestyle like everyone I grew up with had parents that worked and you know you'd sort of like get home from school you do the thing or you'd be in like after school care until like five or six and you're like do my parents forget about me why are they so late why am I the last kid here <laughs> right like that was a pretty common experience so I think like having um your own self-sufficiency became really important and whether that was like microwaving something or sort of like the first thing I learned how to cook out of necessity was like a pasta sauce because I was like well, my mom's not gonna be home till seven or eight and I need to make dinner and then I started cooking as like a way to procrastinate uh you know, doing homework and all that stuff, but it was also just like, I had to feed myself and I enjoyed it. So I did. Yeah. It. Yeah. 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 Um, it's funny. Cause my next question just kind of, I think you just kind of answered it, which was uh first meal you remember being able to make yourself. So that, that, uh, that ties into that. What about, uh, the first time you remember like following a recipe? Um, it was definitely like a Martha Stewart scone or a James Beard biscuit. It was, I, it was sort of like, I want to make a scone. I want to make a biscuit. I felt like you know, sort of again in a full circle moment, it was the first thing that I did that I was like, oh, I need a recipe for this. Like making something like a pasta sauce, I didn't need a recipe for. I felt like I could figure it out based on how something tasted and I could like go back and like sort of reverse engineer what it tasted like based on my knowledge of what went inside of it versus like a baked good where I was like, I need like exact measurements to accomplish this result. And I don't right. remember where I got it because the internet was so weird at that time. I, I guess there was the internet and you could like go to a website, but you, you didn't have phones that had internet capabilities, obviously. So I'd like print out a recipe maybe, but like the availability of what was online at that moment was so sparse. So that's why it was like Martha Stewart scone, James Beard, but like there were like three options, you know, it wasn't yeah. like sort of the breadth that it is now. So it really, it really forced you to experiment and adjust based on your own preferences. Right. It's, you know, that's kind of interesting because I'm thinking when it comes to cooking and thing and prepping food and things like that, like, uh, were you always someone that would sort of just like, like vaguely follow the directions and kind of just like throw in your own stuff? And then, or did you, or, uh, were you pretty good about the baking aspect where you have to follow like very specific rules? Like what was more fun for you? I think we both know the answer to that, Jeremy. Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> yeah, I hate following rules. I, I yeah. like being told what to do on occasion because it gives your brain like a creative break. And sometimes you just want to be told what to do because you're like, I'm making too many decisions. But like, I feel like the the sort of experimentation was part of the appeal. Like, I think it would have probably been a pretty short-lived hobby had I just followed instruction sure. and not been able to like imprint myself or opinions or ideas onto something. So I think like, I remember taking the Martha Stewart scone recipe and being like, I'm going to add twice the amount of fruit. I'm going to add this fruit instead of this fruit. I'm going to see what it tastes like with this or that. Like, it, I feel like that was part of the experience and why I became so interested in it. Sure. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. So, um, 
you know, I, I guess I didn't fully know this, but uh, I read that when you uh, graduated, and you went to college, you were doing it for creative writing first. Um, yeah. What was, what was your, what was your idea then? Like, were you going to, were you going to try to get into like, uh, like trying to write a book, like uh, work for like, what was, what was your I was direction? Just, I was just trying to live. I was just trying to yeah. live. I yeah. had no plan. There was no okay. plan. I feel yeah. like there's barely a plan now. <laughs> like I am extremely vibes based, Jeremy. Okay. Um, I, I sort of like, especially with a decision like that, I was yeah. like, oh, this is a thing that I'm interested in and I want to get better at and explore. And I think when you're that age, you kind of also don't really know what's out there. You don't really know the possibilities. You don't know like what's um, available to you in terms of like a real career choice. So I think that's part of what college is, although I wouldn't quite know entirely because I did drop out after like a year and a half. Um, but yeah, I mean, I did it because that's what I wanted to do. And I became very like, you know, stubborn and that like, I only wanted to do things that I was like really inspired by, like how privileged are you to be able to do that? But through, through all of that, I, I were like, I had like day jobs and I like made my own, you know, made my own money, made like $20,000 a year. But like, I was like, okay, as long as I can support myself and like have a job and like take the class, I can take the classes I want and like figure the rest out. I felt like I could manage it all as long as I was like able to pay rent or like do something. I didn't feel like I had to um, get myself involved in something that didn't fulfill me or interest me long-term. Cause I was like, well, if this is the thing I'm supposed to do for most of my life, I should really care about it. Right. And sort of stumbled through that. Totally. And how was your time as a, uh, as a banana slug? Cause I didn't, I don't know if I realized you, uh, you're up in Santa Cruz. I was, but I was banana slug adjacent. I went to oh. Cabrillo community college up there and all my friends were banana slugs and I lived down the street from there. So I spent a lot of time there. Um, but not academically. <laughs> got it. Got it. Got it. Were you, uh, were you working up in Santa Cruz, like on that street that has like pizza, my heart and all those, all those. Oh my places? God. Pizza, my heart. No, yeah. I was a nanny. Actually. I was a oh. nanny for two different families, um, up near like Aptos. And this was sort of like, I mean, this was like 20 years ago, I guess. Yeah. So this was very much like tech world starting to like mm. kind of be in that area but both families I worked for worked one worked for Google one worked for Apple got it got it so what um what was like the moment for you when you were like like what was there a specific catalyst that made you be like I don't want to do this I want to get back into food or like create food as a path yeah I I sort of was like this isn't my place I don't want to live here right now I was 19 I was like 18 19 I was a little no I was how old was I? Yeah, 18, 19. Um, I was like, you know what? This isn't the time for me to live in the city. Like I wasn't going to school at the university. I wasn't old enough to like really appreciate living in a place like that. It felt a little isolating. Um, I kind of felt like I wanted to get back to Los Angeles and was like, okay, well, I'll go to culinary school. Like I need a reason to move back. And I didn't have any experience in food, obviously. So I decided to, that I would enroll in culinary school and, and move back to LA and get a job at a restaurant while I was in culinary school. So when I went to look for that job, the chef that I spoke to, he was like, I would not go to culinary school if I were you. He's like, I would save your money um, and come work for me. And if you end up liking it, then that's great. But you know, a lot of people finish culinary school and they're like $50,000 in debt. And they're like, I hate working in a restaurant. 
Wow. And I was like, okay. Yeah. And that's true because I don't think I was prepared for the intensity of it, but instead of being scared of it, I, I sort of fell deeper in love with it. And that's sort of when I began my career and then never went to culinary school and never went back to college. But that was like the idea is like, if I hate it, I can always go to culinary school. If I hate it, I can always go to go back to college. Like, but it felt like I want to take this moment and like really apply myself to the thing that like gets me really excited and, and, and like stimulated and just like, I, I can see this being a thing for me. Yeah, totally. What was the first restaurant that you ended up working in? It was called Sona, S-O-N-A, which yeah. feels like an American psycho restaurant. Um, <laughs> and, but it was, it was like a very small, like tasting menu restaurant, like very, like pretty high end, but like very like young energy, very sexy, very like for the moment, like cutting edge and like bad boy chef and like hot couple and like that owned it. It was like very chic and like exciting. And it felt like they were sort of like, we don't run a restaurant like regular restaurants. We run a restaurant like a different restaurant. And they did. And by evidence, the fact that they hired someone like me who was 19 and had no experience, yeah. but like had a willingness to learn and like really wanted to work there. My ex-boyfriend who I was dating at the time also worked there and he was like 21 or 22. And it was sort of like a similar thing where they were like, wow, these young people just like really want to work hard. Yeah. And it, it was like, a sink or swim type of situation. And I don't think had I sunk, I would be here today, but I was like, oh, I'm, I'm still fucking up every day, but I'm learning from those fuck ups. And I still want to come back. Like it didn't deter me. I was like, I will succeed at this. I will be good at this. Um, and I, you know, evolved over time into whatever it is that I do today. This podcast is presented by DistroKid, an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from iTunes to Spotify and Apple Music, then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place. They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. Were you ever in a restaurant? I mean, like, I feel like it's become such a talking point with the show, like The Bear. Like, was any of the restaurants you ever worked at like that level of stress? Because, you know, I think people yeah. think of those sort of people I think now think that every high-end restaurant is that was it that energy ever it was that energy a lot and in okay. fact I sort of like Jeremy Allen White kind of looks like my ex <laughs> <laughs> and he was like the same kind of intense and I was like whoa this, I texted some people being like is it just me or does he look and they were like oh my god we thought the same thing um oh my god. So that was kind of funny but it was yeah it was like definitely in that spirit not in like his flashbacks where he had like the fine dining because I never worked at a restaurant like that that felt really stuffy it mm. felt more like the restaurant that Carmi runs in the bear where it's very like kind of like more like punk energy where it's like we don't play by these fucking rules but we also play by the fucking rules right and it felt like that sort of hybridization of like really high standards with like really intense fuck you energy rather than like a sort of more composed, like traditional brigade system of like a true fine dining restaurant that feels like stuffy and like, you know, precise. Did you see the menu? Yes. 
So it wasn't like that at all. It was definitely yeah. more like the bear, more chaos. Um, so you worked at a few different restaurants though. So I saw you were, uh, worked at one called, uh, is it Quince? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Quince and, in San Francisco. And then, uh, yeah, and then in San Francisco and then Milk Bar and then Pies and Thighs. So like with which each one of those, uh, was there something that you were learning from each one that you think you've applied like to your current life or um, was it kind of always more of the same, but you were just picking up different recipes and things like that? No, I think like because each place was in a different city, it was a different energy as a restaurant. It was a different grouping of people, different staff, different coworkers, different chefs, different everything every every time I worked at a place I learned something um and like either from the people or the place or a mixture of both um I had a lot of really wonderful mentors throughout my life and my career and I think that I don't know if you feel this way but like you sort of start your life with these like you have these mentors and you have these like people that like are sort of bringing you along the way and then all of a sudden you realize you're like wait I have fewer of those people and you're like that doesn't mean because I don't need them. It just, it's, you sort of like age out of, of that and like you become the mentor yeah. and like you become the, the boss or the person or whatever. And I kind of miss the days of like having the person that I could like look to and be like, what should I do? Cause I, I really, these days, especially I often feel like, what should I do? But I think it's about finding peers that you can ask that same question to, which I definitely have. But yeah, I think that, I mean, I, I learned something every, every day really that I worked. And I think that if I were to ever write a memoir, I could definitely like bisect my life, you know, divide my life by the chapters of like the places I worked in, like certain things I learned in each place that I still apply to like the way that I write recipes or the way I write books or the way that I even cook in my home right now. Do you have, uh, if you were to choose like one of those restaurant experiences, like, do you have one that would, you would consider your favorite, maybe based on the location or just the year spent? It's really tough. I would say like Sona, the first restaurant I worked at has to be not the favorite, but like definitely the most formative because it was the first. And it really laid the groundwork and foundation for like how I think about food, especially desserts. Um, And then Quince was a really special time too, because I had the added benefit of like sort of being in charge for half my time there of like the department. And then also learning from other really great pastry chefs along the way. Um, So like, at Sona, I worked for this man, Ron Mendoza, and then at Quince, I worked uh, for this guy named William Warner, and both of them were hugely influential in, like, the way that I learned and think about, but they they themselves are two very different people who have very different teaching styles and very different, mm-hmm. but, like, the end result is something, like, undeniably excellent, and so, like, it kind of also showed me that there's, like, a million ways to get to the same place, and and through that, you can kind of parse out, like, well, what's the right way for me? Like, as long as we all get here, like we can kind of become like an amalgamation of the people that came before us and like what we've learned from them. That's amazing. So then, uh, you know, then your career starts to to go uh, at a different way where you start getting into, you know, you start working for magazines and things like that. So what was your first experience uh, like having to do any sort of writing for uh, for this world? Um, I think that I wanted to figure out a way to be in food but not work in a restaurant basically and I think that I have sort of like looked at my skill set and like what I'm interested in and I was like just gravitated towards like writing as a form of teaching which is something that you do in real time when you're in a restaurant so anytime you hire somebody in a restaurant they come in and you have to teach them how to do something here's how we do this here here's how we make this here 
And so there's an element of like connecting with the person to help them understand a technique or a process or whatever. And I was, you know, sort of drawn to the idea that I could do that through writing. And like, if I could write the same way that I spoke and communicate in the same way of efficacy, then I could reach a larger number of people. And so it became like the first step being like instructional writing and like service oriented writing. And then the more comfortable I became with that, the more comfortable I became with like more narrative writing and personal writing and injecting personality into it because also like recipes are pretty boring to read. I was like, well, what if they weren't? What if they have energy and personality and a perspective and a voice, just like any other book of information? I feel like a lot more people would want to read that. Sure. And then, you know, in a way, it's like you get to then harness the creative writing sensibilities that exactly. you, know, you first went to college for. Did you find yourself... Uh, getting to scratch that itch and making that kind of a motivator? Yeah, absolutely. I, it sort of like was the thing that clicked for me of like, oh, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Feeling like being like studying like writing or political science. I was like, this isn't quite doing it for me. And like, I worked in restaurants for six or seven years and it really did it for me until it kind of stopped. Mm. And I was just like getting a little fatigued. And once I found out that I could actually combine the two of like cooking, feeding people and writing and teaching, I was like, oh, that's my lane. That's where I want to be. That's where I want to exist. Right. Yeah. You get to, you get to have basically the, uh, the live journal experience, but um, for, you know. Yeah. I was basically like, how do I live journal forever? <laughs> how do I live journal professionally? And I, I don't want to say I nailed it, but I think I nailed it. I think you nailed it. I think you did all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, something I didn't, I didn't really realize, but I saw you, you, uh, the first thing that you ever put out, like physically from what I can tell, unless I'm wrong, is, a, is like a, a smaller book called Lemons. Yeah, is that, right? that is it. That's the first oh, one. Yeah. It's funny. And when I was like looking it up and like even looking pictures at it, it also does look punk. Like it like looks like a smaller, <laughs> like it looks like a zine almost, you know? It's like it a is small... a zine. Yeah. Yeah that, yeah. that was a really cool company called Short Stacks. And they did single ingredient cookbooks done in like a pamphlet style that no photos, just recipes. Like each one had its own unique design and font choices. And it was really cool. And yeah, they asked me to do one like a number of years ago. And that was like my first little cookbook. And once I did that, I was like, oh, I want to write books. Like yeah. I want a full collection. How long did that take you to prepare? Like, were you like mulling over it a bunch? Like how you wanted to present it? Or did you just kind of let it fly out of you? No, they were like, well, if you were to do a short stack, what ingredient would you want to do? And I was like, lemons, of course, no doubt. And they're like, great. It's not take, cause they had been doing them for a little while. Like, I, I don't know what volume mine is, but there were several before me and they had several in production. So I was like, I hope my ingredients not taken. Like to me, lemon is like the most obvious ingredient you could pick. And yet it wasn't taken. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, perfect. And I don't know. I think it probably came to me pretty naturally. I didn't belabor over it. It wasn't like a struggle. It came pretty naturally. Um, I probably waited to the last minute to submit it, whatever the deadline was. And like, I just remember it being like such a thrill to see something like, I remember I had like a little mini book party for it. And then right afterwards, some friends, my uh, three friends of mine and I went to my favorite restaurant in New York called Prune, which is sort of since closed, but um, it was like a really memorable day and a really memorable like experience. And it, it really sort of set the stage for me confirming that I wanted to do that again and again and again. Yeah, I was going to ask of that, how like soon after that came out, did it spark you wanting to do your first, the dining in book? It was pretty soon after that I was approached for that. Um, 
that I had begun conversations with either right before that came out or right after. But it was it wasn't like a direct correlation. I don't think anyone had like seen the Lemons book and was like, oh, you should write a book. Um, I'm trying to remember, actually, because it was it all happened in the same year. Like I got the book deal for dining in and nothing fancy the same year that the Lemon Shortstack came out, which I believe was 2016. Got it. Got it. No, so no, no. That's not true. 15, 2015. So I got two questions from that one, because I, you know, it's always fun to sort of court, like, you know, see how, how close it is with, with music world. So, um, with the, with the first book that you were doing, um, is it hard for you to know when it's done? Like I'm comparing that to like, if you're writing a record or like recording a record, like sometimes it's hard to be like, okay, I'm done adding things to this, or I'm done editing what we want this to be. Um, did it take you a while to like know when it was done to finally turn in? Um, yeah, I think that like with all my projects, they kind of like tell you when they're done. And like, you, I spent a lot of time like adding things and taking things away. Um, and yeah, I'm assuming it's not unlike your experience in like a recording studio where you're like, go in thinking this is going to be it. And then you work through it and you're like, I actually don't like this at all. And it's going to become something totally different or go away entirely. So it's like a creative process and it kind of like lets you know if it's working or not. And I think just being able to listen to that voice of like, this isn't working and not letting your ego go get in the way of being like, but I must make it work. It's like, you don't actually have to make it work. And if it's not flowing, then you can take a break. If it's not working, you can get rid of it. If it's like, you know, you're in charge of your own like sort of creative lineup and that's either a track listing or a collection of recipes in a book, whether it's a collection of recipes or a track listing or whatever, like you sort of have your own creative autonomy of, of deciding what this is. And I think when it comes out, you're always like, oh, I should have put that in there. Or this one is actually like, I'm not actually that in love with this one, but it's a time capsule, right? Like we, the reason we make things that are semi or, or actually permanent is to be like, this is where we were at this time. This is where I was at this time. And in that moment, you stand by a thousand percent. And then maybe a year later, you're like, oh, it's like not really where I'm at. But in five years, you're like, wow, I really stand by this. This feels really good to me. And I think it's that like creative collection that you're able to be like, oh, this is like my life in seven projects or whatever, if we're lucky that we get to keep making things. Yeah, that's all extremely relatable and really well put. I'm wondering if uh, if your time working for like Bon Appetit and all those places like helped you sort of read like define, like redefine that sort of aspect of your brain to be able to to just let things go and move on. Or if it's like... Uh, or if, yeah, I, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's like um, having that sort of discipline in yourself to be like, okay, I don't need to have this. We can move on from this. Yeah, I think for me, I think about the reader a lot. I think totally. about how someone's using the book and if they can use it. And if ultimately something is a, is a recipe or a dish or a technique or an ingredient that I really love, but I'm like, I don't know that it has the reach. I don't mm. know that everybody's going to want to do this. I don't know if everybody can do this. I don't know if like, it really serves a purpose beyond like my own interest, then that's like the first thing to go for sure. I okay. I feel like I'm for sure in the service industry still, as much as of a creative as I am, I consider myself to be in the service industry and like I am providing a service to people. Uh, and then that's, yeah, for sure. And then, uh, you know, you mentioned the two, like a uh, two book. I don't think I ever realized that like when you'd sign a book deal, like there's sometimes like a, oh, it's for two. It's like similar to like an album. It's like, oh, you know, two, absolutely two in an option or one in an option or whatever. Um, yeah. When you go into that, did you have the ideas for what you wanted these 
all of your books at this point to be, or is it like you just wake up one day and you say, that's, that's a direction I want to go? No, I, I thought about it a lot. I think for dining in, which was my first book. Yeah. It was a struggle to be like, I'm just going to write a book. That's like my recipes because everybody wanted like a hook. They wanted like a, but what's like the pitch? Is it, are they made in one pot? Is it a 30 minute? Is it vegetable based? Is it on the go? Is it like, what, what's the like razzle dazzle? And I was like, there is no razzle dazzle. The razzle dazzle is these recipes are good and they work. Totally. Right. <laughs> and my editor like took a real chance on that being like the only nece- like necessary qualification um, because I wasn't like a famous person. I wasn't just like, here's a famous person and their recipes. It was like, here's a person you've never heard of. And you're supposed to like trust that they're going to make a collection of recipes that are really great. And my editor really believed in me. So from that moment on, it felt like a bit easier to say like, okay, now that I have like the baseline, um, you know, setting the stage, I was like, then I can get a little bit more specific. So like nothing fancy was about having people over same sort of approach as the first one, like accessible, highly cookable recipes. Um, but it was with the idea that you were going to, you know, cook for others either in your home or in their home or whatever. Um, and then for the third one, my editor had always wanted me to do a dessert book. And so I thought it was a good opportunity. It's like a third book to take a break from the first two, but like having established myself as like a person who writes recipes for dinner or like, again, functional, practical purposes, dessert felt like a good break to be like, these are just fun. And like, we're having a good time and they don't need to exist, but they do. And like, it felt like a good opportunity to kind of reflect on like, the last 20 years of my career and where I started like in desserts and pastries and figure out how to apply like that professional sensibility to like a more home cook sensibility. For sure. I love, you know, with, with your books in particular, uh, a, I mean, they always stand out. They look like so they're just like such attractive looking books, you know, and like you can they always, <laughs> they always stand out when they're, you know, on the, on the bookshelf or whatever. It always gets me so excited to always, you know, walk into a bookstore and see them uh, on display. Oh. It's like super exciting. So with this new book uh, coming out, one of the things that I love about your approach is that you really do um, seem to make it for everybody. Like you don't have to yeah. be intimidated. You don't have to be intimidated by what you're doing. Um, but what, you know, by this book or like, if you're, if you were never a foodie, like you can, it's so accessible and all that sort of stuff. So like, um, you know, has that always been, what's one of the more important driving things for you? Like that whole sort of like, you don't have to like this to still like this sort of aspect, you know? Yeah. I think that for me, the biggest interests for me lie in an art form or an industry or a you know, a medium that I'm not that familiar with, but that I can still connect with. Like, I'm not an expert in music, but like, I can still connect deeply with something or art or film or any, anything writing. A a person could write about a topic I'm unfamiliar with, but if their writing is good, I'm going to still want to read it. And I think that that makes a person just generally more interesting and well-rounded and like a, a better, you know, individual on this planet just to be like, oh yeah, like I, I like, the style, not necessarily the subject, or like I'm into great work, not necessarily the subject. And I never wanted to pigeonhole myself into being like, oh, I'm a food person for other food people. I sort of wanted to be like, if you're going to cook, and I know that you probably are at least once, like, here's a great resource, you know, to make you not feel like you have to be a devoted sort of like devotee of the craft to like understand or get it and there's a lot of books out there that are for 
really serious cooks and bakers and, and dessert makers. And those books are incredible. And they're like well-researched and they are, you know, precise and exacting and sometimes complicated, which a lot of people enjoy about cooking. And like, they like that it's a project. They like that it's like a thing that they're going to tackle. I sort of took the opposite approach of just like, we all need to eat. It should be delicious and you shouldn't feel stressed out while you're doing it. It shouldn't feel like a project. It's yeah, it's absolutely perfect. Like on a personal note, like the, you know, I was raised with single mom who like worked really late. And then, you know, so we were like off more often than not like a fast food family or like she would whip something up super quick or whatever. So like I was never exposed to learning how to cook anything other than like microwave or or whatever. So like um, with what you're doing, it makes it, it makes me feel like I can get involved too and that I can enjoy it and find like an appreciation for it. And that's something that I never thought I would have. So like, you know, from not even just the fact that we're friends, but just like to you, like that's. Oh, thank uh, you. Really, yeah, of course. Of course. Well, I know that about you because we would go get hamburgers or like we would go get food after like an Amoeba record session and you'd be like, I will have one hamburger, nothing on it, just ketchup. And I was like, you don't want anything on it. And you're like, no. And plain, I was like, yeah. Plain bro, plain bro for life. Yeah. I'm a little, like, wow. I'm better. I'm better these days. I promise you. But uh, what do you eat on it? What do you eat on your burger now? Um, there's some lettuce on there now. How about that? Wow. <laughs> Never thought I'd see today. You've, you've grown. You've grown so much. Yeah, exactly. That's um, beautiful. So, uh, another first experience situation. What about your first time being on camera doing, uh, doing any sort of cooking, like for a, whether it's TV show or, cause then obviously you know, I know you do like, uh, the home movies thing and stuff like that, but like, um, what was your first time you can remember doing that on TV? or anything like that? I think the first time I was on TV was like either the Today Show or Good Morning America. I was working at Bon Appetit at the time and they wanted like a person on camera to like talk about chocolate, okay. which is like not even an ingredient I really like or care about, but it was like yeah. a Valentine's Day episode, I think. And they were like, here are some chocolate gifts that you can give to what, I don't know. It was like, yeah. it, it's a TV segment. So it's like kind of made up for you. And I'm like, do you want to be the person to talk about it? And I remember being really excited, really nervous. And I, it was the whole segment lasted for like maybe 48 seconds. And like, you spend all this time in the green room and you get like your hair and makeup and you prepare your outfit and you're like, I'm going to crush this and I'm going to be funny and sparkling and charming. And then like, you get up there and you're like, ha ha, yes, chocolate. And then it's over. Like it's, there's no nothing there. It's like, there's no, <laughs> there's no, there's no like, showcasing a personality totally. like who you are you're just like a person and then you're not there and like it's fucking over and I was like oh that was interesting I didn't love that as much as I thought I would <laughs> but then I started doing like videos for Bon Appetit that was like in a closed studio where it was you know me and maybe one other person or just me and like a sound person and two camera people and that I loved because it felt intimate it felt like this it was like you're not performing for anyone else you're not nervous because it's just you and two people and I was able, I mean, the first ones that I did are horrible. I, I liked it, but I was still nervous. And I was still like, who am yeah. I on camera? Totally. And it was sort of like the way that I felt like when I started writing, I was like, well, who am I as a writer? Like, I know who I am as a regular person, but who am I as a writer? Who am I on camera? And once I realized I could be the same person in all the things that I do, it became a lot easier. I was like, oh, I don't have to be a different person when I write. I can write as me. I don't have to be a different person on camera. I can still be me. And like, once you establish that level of like 
I don't even want to say confidence because you write in a room alone. And when you're on camera, even for like my home movies, it, there's five other people in the room. It's, it's not the same thing as like being in an audience, playing to a crowd, being on live TV. Like you have nothing to be afraid of because you're like, this is an intimate situation and right. it allows you to be more yourself. So I think that like, it's a muscle that you, you continuously work on, but not unlike life, right? Where you're like at 24, you're like, who am I? who am I in the world? How do I be like, you go to a party and you're like, Oh, hi. And now at 37 or whatever, I'm like, Oh, this is who I am. And I can go to a party where I don't know anyone and still be myself. But that's something that you learn over time. And, you know, I don't think is, I don't think comes that naturally to most people and it didn't to me, but it's, it's like a muscle that you flex for sure. Yeah. I have to imagine with, especially with like the home movies thing that you do, it's like, I'm sure there's a lot more pressure off because obviously everybody who's there is, you know, they want you to succeed and we're, you're all in that together. It's like, yeah. you know, you could always just do something again or, or something like that. But it's like, yeah, in a way, it it's pretty, it's it's not unlike improv in a lot of ways with what you're doing too, because yeah. you're just kind of playing off what's happening and you're talking it out and sort of like letting things just flow. So um, yeah, I, I feel like you're perfect for that. Cause you've obviously been, oh. always, always been a very funny person. So thank yeah. you. Well, we, we have a very similar sense of humor. We've always liked the same funny things. It's, this is also very true. I, I feel very like cool when I was like, I watched the state and like, I've known about wet hot American summer for years. Like, you know, and like all these people, um, <laughs> yeah. I remember, I think I texted you once, like when I first moved to New York, I went to a restaurant and Ken Marino was sitting at the bar and I was like, oh my God, guess who's here at the restaurant? It was like the biggest celeb sighting I could possibly imagine. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. You know, <laughs> uh, I actually just saw Joe Latrulio at a coffee shop. Oh, wow. Shop that a is a shop. sighting. Yeah. I, I'm shameless. I had to say something. I walked past yeah. him. And we were like, I was leaving with a friend and I just looked over and I was just like, hey, I'm sorry to bother you. Uh, the State's my all-time favorite show. Like, thank you so much for the laughs, like kind of a yeah. thing. Um, oh, I think he would, I imagine he'd get a kick out of that. And I think that like, if I saw anybody now, I would say that because it feels like a a deep, long-standing connection rather than like, oh, I love Party Down, which is like a great show, obviously, but like that feels more like in the moment zeitgeisty, but I want them to know where I'm like a real head, you know? Totally, totally. One of my favorite stories in the entire world. Do you remember the, uh, if you, there was a, one of the bigger state skits, which is the, uh, the taco, uh, the taco guy with the mail who delivers like mailman delivers <laughs> tacos instead of, uh, instead of, uh, the mail. Yeah. Um, so Vinny who sings in that band, the movie life, the pop punk band. The oh, movie wow. Life. The movie yeah. life. Where were they on that mixtape? They, yeah, they, they would have fit right in. So he has a state tattoo for that. He has a mailbox that's open with two tacos inside. And it's literally just like such wow. a deep cut state tattoo. And he told me an incredible story where he got on the subway, sat down and he looked over and he didn't realize he was sitting right next to Kevin Allison from the state who plays. Oh the my God. Who plays the, yeah. the, the delivery guy. And, uh, and he was just like, I have to show you. He's like, I'm sorry to bother you. I have to show you this. And he pointed and like Kevin Allison got super excited. was like, I've seen that on the internet. That's you. That's amazing. Yeah. And then, and then Vinny was like, and then when the next stop came, I just got up and I had to leave because it wasn't my stop, but I just didn't know what else to say. And I panicked. <laughs> oh, I've done that. Right. I also don't want to continue the conversation with somebody. I'm like, well, this is me. And I'm like, this isn't me. I'm just leaving. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that like the reason that feels okay to like a approach, if you will, because I think even for the time, like that type of comedy has felt pretty niche. I don't know, even though it was like oh, on MTV, sure. it was like yeah. pretty widely broadcast, but like, 
I can't imagine that getting made today. Oh my God. <laughs> people are too concerned with like, will everybody like this? And I really enjoy the fact that they made something that I felt like was like for them and for other people like them. And when you connect with that, I think it's a good reminder, like for anybody that wants to make something like mass success shouldn't always be the end goal because the individual connections you make with people that do get you are so much more valuable than like everybody being like, oh yeah, I've heard of them. That's pretty cool. Like that doesn't interest me that much. I want like diehard fans of being like, I have your first edition, blah, blah, like, because you really, it's more meaningful long-term, but it also allows you the creative freedom to like really make the work that you want rather than being like, I hope I nail it with everybody. Totally. Yeah. You cultivate like a, an audience that deeply, deeply cares for sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, last last first question I have for you, which is uh, what was your first book tour like? Like, how oh was that? Yeah. How was that situation for you? It was chaos. It was totally nuts. I way overextended myself. I planned it with my friend, Lily Sherman, who's an event coordinator. And she at the time was still working with Bon Appetit. So she had like a full-time job. Mm-hmm. I had a full-time job. We were like trying to plan this tour. And I was like, I'm going to go to like 18 cities and do like 42 events and cook dinners and do pop-ups and have book signings. And like, because no one knew who I was, I felt like I really had to fucking hustle. And I still feel like I have to hustle, but in a different way. But for this one, it was like, I was doing a book signing in Oakland for like 20 people. And then I would go to Sonoma and cook a dinner and have to introduce myself to every single table that sat down because they didn't know why they were there, who I was. I had to like then fly to LA and like throw this party and invite a bunch of people who also didn't know who I was, but it was like an introduction and I was cooking the whole night. And like, it was just so much more work and like so much more. I was also young. (laughs) This was like five years ago and young, younger than I am now. And I think that I was like, felt like I really had to bust my ass to be like, this is who I am. And this is what I'm about because it was my first book. And I I did have to do that, I think, but I also had a lot more energy. I had a lot more like scrappiness and I'm really grateful for that because it informs me now, like I'm still scrappy. I just have less energy, but it's more like, okay, I've done all these things. Do I really need to do that again? Like, will that help me now? Will that serve me now in the place that I am in my career? And I think, again, it's like, not unlike a band, right? Like when you start off and you're like, we're in a van and we like hit every city in like a, you know, 300 mile radius and we play every night and we sleep on couches and we do the thing we have to do. And then eventually you can kind of like figure out the best way to like reach more people and like hopefully support yourself along the way. But like, it was, it was great. It was like, I was like, Oh, I love this. I love being out and the, you know, meeting people and traveling and like peddling my wares, so to speak. Um, It was a really exciting time for sure. I think I, I think wonder if that was the same one where, uh, I think you went to the, I think one of the days was maybe at like the farmer, the Fairfax farmer's market or something. And, and I think I came and saw yeah. you. That's where I bought the book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I could tell you were hustling, which was, which was like really cool to see, you know, like that you were out there and that there's people excited. There's people in line to buy it. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's just, it's always I think that was, excited. was that my second book or my first book? It may have been my first book. I think it was the first book. Was yeah. it the first book? Yeah. Oh, yeah. you're right. You're right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, this was sort of like right as Instagram was becoming a thing. Like I didn't have a YouTube channel. I didn't have a column. I I was sort of like, it was tough to be known. And like, you know, my second book way outsold my first book. But I think that's just like a trajectory of 
that being happens. a more known quantity. Yeah. Um, but of course, my fear was that nobody was going to buy as many copies as the first one because I thought the first one did so well, and it did. But yeah, it's like buying a book is a real investment for a lot of people. They're like, oh. I don't really cook that much, or like it's you know twenty eight dollar. It's like not a cheap thing to like put your faith in. So I think yeah. you have to constantly prove yourself of like why this is worth it and proving that like you're the real deal versus like a person who like is pretending to cook or something I don't know or just like yeah I, I wanted people to know that it was like a real career for me and that I was like really doing it rather than like a person being like I read a book and like how would you know if you don't feed them you know so I felt like the need to like constantly be cooking and like showing people that I could do it you know Right, right, right. No, I feel it. Um, well, let me hit you with the last question, which was when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you've been working so hard towards? Honestly, I think sometime in 2019, in December, I had just put out my second book, Nothing Fancy, and I was going to be on the Today Show. And I went in, I had to go by the studio um, to... And I had been on the Today Show before for like other things or other people, but I was going on for like myself and my book. And I remember I was like at Rockefeller Center and like the tree was up and it was lit and people were ice skating. I felt like a very New York moment. And I was like, holy mm -hmm. shit. I was like, I live in New York and I'm going to be on TV tomorrow morning talking about this thing that I wrote. Like, holy shit. Like, that's crazy. I really, it like really had this specific moment in that moment. And I think that had I been more open to it, I, I should have and could have felt that moment before because I have been doing what I feel like I was meant to do and wanted to do for so long, but was like constantly burying that feeling because I was like, don't be complacent, like always work harder. And like, it was like one specific moment where I was like, huh, I did this thing. And yeah. I felt like really proud and sort of like excited to even take like five seconds to appreciate that. Incredible. Incredible. Thank you so much, Allison. It's been a, it's been a total blast. Oh, you are my favorite person. I'm so glad we did this. Thank you for having me. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Allison for coming on and thank you for listening reminder there is a bonus episode available right now where allison answered questions that were submitted by subscribers you can hear that over at patreon.com slash the first ever patreon all right take care thank you so much and uh have a good rest of your week bye bye